0: And welcome to a podcast from Exchange Chambers' Personal Injury and Clinical Negligence Department. I'm Chris Guttridge, a barrister here at Exchange Chambers, and I'm joined by two of our departments, Silks, Louis Brown, King's Counsel, and Chris Barnes, King's Counsel. Um, We're here today to talk about uh, claims arising from consent to treatment and variant treatments, specifically the implications of the recent Supreme Court decision in McCulloch against Fourth Valley Health Board, Uh, The Supreme Court handed down its judgment in McCulloch on the 12th of July this year, just before the summer break. We're about two months on at the time of recording. And I'm going to ask Chris and Louis to unpick for us the significance of the decision in McCulloch and how it changes or refines the legal test for consent previously set out by the Supreme Court in Montgomery against Lanarkshire Health Board back in 2015. And so Montgomery is where our story starts, and I'll start with you, Chris. Can you tell, tell us, please, um,
1: what happened in Montgomery and what the issues were? Thanks, Chris. Well, at its heart, Montgomery was a consideration of the, the tension, if you like, between medical paternalism on the one hand and patient choice on the other. And the traditional approach, medical paternalism, essentially involved doctors making decisions as to what they thought was in the best interest of patients and that thereafter forming the treatment plan for the patient. And in recent years, there's been social developments, legal developments, such as the right to life under Article 8 of the convention, which really moved the position towards favoring choice on the part of the patient. And in Montgomery, the Supreme Court really summarise these developments in this way. They said what they point towards is an approach to the law which instead of treating patients as placing themselves in the hands of their doctors and then suing them if something goes wrong, it treats them so far as possible as adults who are capable of understanding that medical treatment is uncertain of success and may involve risks, accepting responsibility for the taking of risks affecting their own lives and living with the consequences of their choices. And if I may, I'll just quote Baroness Hale, because she put the point rather more pithily. Pretty strong stuff, this. Gone are the days, she said, when it was thought that on becoming pregnant, a woman lost not only her capacity, but also her right to act as a genuinely autonomous human being. So that's really the background to Montgomery and why the court was approaching this issue, as they did. Very briefly, in terms of the, the facts, Montgomery was a birth injury case, a shoulder dystocia case. The claimant was a large child and was born with very severe disabilities. And the argument went that his mother should have been given the option of an elective C-section, caesarean section. And at first instance, and on appeal, the claim was unsuccessful on the basis, essentially, that the treating doctor, the treating obstetrician, thought that giving every patient the option of a c-section would result in them all taking it up, and that was inappropriate. And it's perhaps a mark of how far we've come, even in the few years since Montgomery, that when you see the evidence of the treating obstetrician in that case, that she had determined in her view what was in the maternal best interests of the mother, it sort of rankles really. You think to yourself, well, is it really for the doctor?" To make that judgment call. But in any event, on appeal to the Supreme Court, they set out the relevant test really as follows. What they said is, an adult person of sound mind is entitled to decide which, if any, of the available forms of treatment to undergo, and her consent must be obtained before treatment interfering with her bodily, undertaking, bodily integrity is undertaken. The doctor is under a duty to take reasonable care to ensure that the patient is aware of any material risks involved in the treatment and of any reasonable alternatives or varied treatments. The test of materiality is whether in the circumstances of a particular case a reasonable person in the patient's position would be likely to attach significance to the risk or the doctor is or should reasonably be aware that the particular patient would be likely to attach significance to it. Uh, significantly, and this was one of the points that gained widespread traction in the legal press, the court held that the Bolum test does not apply to the assessment of whether or not the patient had been reasonably and properly consented. And finally there were a couple of really quite favourable comments made by the Supreme Court for the guidance of judges interpreting, interpreting this tests. Uh, firstly the assessment of whether a risk uh, cannot sorry the assessment of whether a risk is material cannot be reduced to percentages so you can't simply say the risk is under 1% therefore it's not material it will depend entirely on the facts of the case and what is material to one claimant might not be material to another uh, secondly and i think significantly actually the doctor's advisory role involves dialogue discussion so that the individual patient can understand the pros and cons of the various different options. What you cannot do is simply give them a lengthy consent form, bombard them with technical information and expect them to make a reasoned choice. So some quite helpful commentary there about the efficacy of a consent form when it comes to defending this sort of case. So overall, a hugely important decision for claimants that really marked a change in the approach of the court.
0: Yeah, so back in 2015, this really was a kind of water, watershed moment, mainly um, or having the, the, the significant impact of rebalancing that medical paternalism individual choice. Um, and what it meant on the ground in clinic cases was that it became effectively easier to succeed on a consent
1: argument than it had been before. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, frankly, anything which takes away the Bolum test, anything which reduces the impact of the Bolum test has to be to a claimant's advantage, because we all know the difficulty of overcoming a defendant doctor's view when supported by a, an ostensibly reasonable expert. So yeah, re- really important, potentially very powerful weapon in the claimant's armoury. So, removing Bolam from the consent equation swings the balance
0: in favour of the claimants. And in the years that have passed since 2015, there have been numerous um, cases grappling with these issues. Some of which have attempted to reintroduce a Bolam element, whilst remaining consistent with what the Supreme Court is saying in in McCulloch. Uh, excuse me, in Montgomery. And then we get to McCulloch um, and this, Louis, I think is where you're going to pick up the, the story if you can tell us a little bit about the McCulloch case and what, what the issues were there.
2: Yeah, thanks Chris. The Supreme Court in McCulloch held that the Boland test, which is referred to as the professional practice test, applies to a doctor's assessment of whether a treatment is reasonable, i.e. is clinically appropriate or not. Before looking briefly at the facts of that case and the, and the reasoning of Lords Hamblin and Burroughs, with whom Lords Reed, Hodge and Kitchen agreed. The the, the three central features of McCulloch uh, are these. Firstly, to discharge a doctor's professional duty of care, he or she cannot simply inform a patient about the treatment options that he or she prefers. Rather, once a range of reasonable treatment options has been identified, then unless the patient indicates otherwise, the doctor must explain all of those alternatives and the material risks involved to the patient. But a doctor is not obliged to tell a patient about treatments which the doctor does not consider to be reasonable applying the professional practice test. And applying that test, a doctor is not obliged to tell a patient about treatments that the doctor does not consider reasonable, even where the doctor is aware of an alternative body of opinion which considers that treatment to be reasonable. Uh, then turning to the facts, um, Mr McCulloch was, was only 39 years of age when he died on the 7th of April 2012. He'd been admitted to the Fourth Valley Regional Hospital on the 23rd of March. Uh, um, prior to admission, he'd been acutely unwell with severe pleuritic chest pains and worsening nausea and vomiting. Tests showed abnormalities consistent with the diagnosis of pericarditis. Uh, he was treated uh, uh, for sepsis. Over the following days until his discharge on the 30th of March, his condition improved. And on discharge, the diagnosis was of acute um, viral um, pericarditis uh, and um, pleuroneumonitis, secondary to uh, bacterial Uh, um, respiratory tract infection. Uh, During that stay his records were reviewed by a highly experienced uh, consultant cardiologist, uh, namely Dr Labinjo. She formed the view that his presentation was not consistent with the diagnosis of pericarditis. He was readmitted uh, to A&E at the same hospital on the 1st of April with central pleuritic chest pain similar to his previous admission. On the following day, he was admitted to the acute admissions unit and a repeat echo cardiogram was was instructed. A nursing note recorded nil further chest pain. On the 3rd of April, Dr Labinjo was asked to assist in the interpretation of the echo. She was not the consultant who was in overall charge of his care and she in fact was not aware that he'd been discharged. On reviewing the third echocardiogram, she did not consider this was different from the first in any way, which gave rise to concern. However, she took the opportunity of discussing the condition with him on the 3rd of April. On that day, he denied any chest pain, palpitations or breathlessness and appeared well and engaged in conversation. Of central importance in the case was the fact that she did not discuss with Mr McCulloch the possibility of prescribing for him non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. She did not do so since when she saw him, he was not in pain and there was no clear diagnosis of pericarditis. In the absence of pain, she did not consider non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to be clinically indicated. Had he complained of pain, she would have prescribed. There was an issue on causation in the case, which was not resolved in the Supreme Court, to the effect that the prescription of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs would have assisted uh, uh, in the uh, um, reduction of of a pericardial uh, infusion Uh, um, in any event mr mcculloch appeared to improve and was discharged home again on the 6th of april without any further input from, from dr labinjo however the following day at home he suffered a cardiac arrest he was admitted to hospital and he died soon after as a result of a cardiac tamponade a claim was brought on behalf of his widow and other family members against the health board The main issue on the appeal um, was what legal tests should be applied to the assessment as to whether an alternative treatment is reasonable and requires to be discussed with the patient. More particularly, did Dr Labinjo fall below the required standard of reasonable care by failing to make Mr McCulloch aware of an alternative treatment, namely the prescription of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, in a situation where the doctor's opinion was that alternative treatment was not reasonable, and that opinion was supported by a responsible body of medical opinion. The Supreme Court held that the professional practice test applies to the assessment of whether a treatment was reasonable. And on the facts, because Dr. Labindo's judgment was that it was not appropriate to prescribe NS non-steroidals, and that judgment was supported by expert evidence, she had discharged her duty The court reached this conclusion for a number of reasons. Firstly, they said, that approach was wholly consistent with the approach in Montgomery, which sought to draw a line between matters which were issues of professional skill or judgment and those which were not. Deciding whether a particular treatment is reasonable is a matter of professional judgment, which ought not to be undermined by a legal test, which overrides the doctor's role, and is not a matter of professional skill and judgment. It was, their lordship said, or would, have amounted to a significant and unwarranted extension of Montgomery. Secondly, the, 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 uh, the Supreme Court held that the approach uh, in McCulloch was consistent with that in Deuce v Worcestershire Acute Hospitals NHS Trust, the 2018 Court of Appeal case with Lord Justice Hamblin, as he then was, giving the lead judgment. And of course, he together with Lord Burroughs gave the lead judgment in the Supreme Court in McCulloch. And the core of uh, this reasoning was that, in the context of the duty to disclose the risks involved in a medical treatment, the determination of the extent and nature of those risks is a matter of professional judgment governed by the professional practice test, the Boland test. Now, the appellants accepted, the appellants being the widow and family members, they having lost in the lower courts, the appellants accepted that the identification of treatment options. Uh, fell within the uh, uh, um, range of expert professional opinion to be determined by the BOLAM test. However, they contended that the duty to inform of reasonable treatments was for the court and not to be determined by the BOLAM test. Thus, the Supreme Court rejected this submission and determined that all matters of professional skill and judgment uh, were matters to which the BOLAM uh, professional. Uh, test should be applied therefore it was properly a matter of the professional skill uh, and judgment of the doctor uh, to be considered in the light of any expert evidence. The outcome was consistent with medical professional expertise and guidance the court had received interventions from the GMC and the BMA and their interventions had emphasized the importance of clinical judgment in determining reasonable alternative treatment options further it was unlikely to be in the patient's best interests to bombard them with information about possible alternative treatments and their material risks, which the doctor did not consider reasonable. A filtering of information given to the patient was important. Two further matters were relied upon to support the policy decision. Uh, one was the approach advocated by the Supreme Court in McCulloch avoided a conflict in the doctor's role. They found that on the appellant's construction the law would require a doctor to inform a patient ...about a medical treatment which the doctor did not consider to be clinically suitable. That would, so the court thought, be an unfortunate development. Uncertainty was avoided, they said. and It's of considerable importance that the doctors should be able to understand... ...a when they have an advisory role and b what that requires of them. The appellant's approach would, the Supreme Court determined, have led to considerable uncertainty. As to the scope of the duty to inform... The court was clear that where a doctor identifies reasonable alternative treatments, the patient should be informed of all of them. A doctor cannot simply tell the patient about the treatment option which the doctor prefers. And unless the patient expressly asks for less information, there was no basis on which a doctor should perform an additional filter about which treatment a patient is told. Now, where a doctor does not consider a treatment to be reasonable but is aware of a different view held by an alternative responsible body... There's no duty of the doctor to discuss that alternative view with the patient, provided the doctor's decision that treatment is not reasonable, satisfies the professional practice, bow and test, the doctor has no duty to tell the patient of the views of that alternative body of opinion.
0: And just to pick up, Lou, before we move on, you, you mentioned the, the policy behind the decision and the practical implications by the fact that the, the BMA intervened and the GMC intervened, and their point was really we, we've got to avoid... Putting doctors in a situation of being required to discuss treatments that they themselves don't think are reasonable and bombarding a patient with a whole range of stuff without performing that initial filter. So that falls firmly within the professional practice test. And it has, putting kind of litigation aside, an obvious practical benefit to doctors on the ground in hospital wards.
2: It it, it would, but the the court would rationalise it by saying it also has a benefit to the patient and that the patient is being informed of a reasonable range of treatment options and they can be confident that provided that reasonable range of treatment options is one that a responsible body of medical opinion would agree with and provided material risks are explained, patient autonomy is protected. Yeah.
0: So we know, to to kind of simplify and distill the test, it is uh, the doctor's job professional practice test to consider the range of reasonable treatments, part one. Part two, once you've considered that range and decided for yourself what is reasonable, you've got to tell the patient about all of them unless the patient tells you they don't want to know, for example. Uh, and the the third point arising is that within all of that process, as the doctor is making his or her mind up about the reasonable range, you can, he or she can be well aware of a, a different body of medical opinion that says, I'm in complete disagreement there is this, that and the other treatment that you should be recommending and applying Bolam, they can ignore that as long as there is a body of opinion that supports
2: that as being unreasonable provided the body of opinion is uh, is reasonable yeah. and it doesn't fall within the Bolitho exception so that
0: that's it isn't it that where having Montgomery having swung the balance in favour of claimants winning consent stroke variant treatment type cases McCulloch Although on its face, the uh, Supreme Court is saying, well, this is entire, what we're saying is entirely consistent with Montgomery. Actually, McCulloch is bringing the pendulum back the other way in favour of defendants. Um, and so moving on to the practical implications of all of this and where it leaves us, uh, it's fair to say, isn't it, that whereas Montgomery made consent cases easier for claimants to win, McCulloch might make them difficult for defendants to lose.
1: I don't think it goes quite that far, luckily. I mean, I think the trouble with McCulloch is that the facts of it and the alternative treatment that was being suggested was, was so far, was such an extreme option. You know, they say difficult cases make bad law. There was really very little expert evidence in support of the use of NSAIDs uh, for Mr McCulloch. And I think notwithstanding the tests that resulted, if the facts had been as per Montgomery, specifically a failure to advise about the option of an elective C-section where there's a risk of shoulder dystocia, that there's no doubt that the court would have found for the claimant, even applying McCulloch, because it would have been very difficult for any expert to suggest that a C-section wasn't a reasonable alternative. So I think it doesn't make it difficult for defendants to lose, but there will be a tranche of cases, perhaps right at the extreme edge of things, where you were seeking to argue for perhaps a more pioneering or novel treatment uh, where yes the pendulum has has swung um, overall I don't think it hugely changes things um, but it may change the way in which we approach the cases and uh, the expert evidence in particular. And just on that point Louis you mentioned
0: the kind of belitho carve out which is going to very much come back into play as a, as a combat to a defendant's McCulloch argument.
2: Yeah, and as will be known, uh, um, uh, um, the Bolam test is not a, uh, um, a get-out-of-jail card for defendants in all cases of clinical negligence. It's necessary to establish that any expert professional opinion as relevant in, in any given case can withstand logical scrutiny. Uh, if it cannot, then uh, uh, in belitho, um, the court will be entitled to reject that opinion. So, uh, I mean, I agree with Chris's analysis. I don't, I don't see McCulloch as being an entire game-changer for claimants uh, um, in, in pursuing these claims. I think his analysis is absolutely right. The,
0: the last thing I just wanted to, to touch on, because it is something that's mentioned both in M- uh, McCulloch and Montgomery, is about the importance of getting the, the factual evidence right at the beginning of these claims, Maybe before you're even instructing your experts, because uh, Chris earlier on talked about, well, you, the consent form can't just be full of risks and the signature at the bottom. But obviously, a, a judge eventually is going to be paying a lot of attention to what the contemporaneous documentation was, what the witnesses are saying about the discussions that were had, whether there is any other material that might um, shed light onto these conversations. And bearing in mind now that the content of the conversations are Going to be at the heart of these kind of cases. Uh, Have you got any thoughts about the importance of the factual not just the expert evidence in consent cases?
1: Yeah I I think the factual evidence is is key. I mean one of the interesting aspects of both Montgomery and McCulloch is that causation was disputed and in both cases the claimants initially lost on causation and although it was overturned in Montgomery and wasn't really considered to any great extent in McCulloch You know, causation is going to be key. You need to proof your claimant very carefully indeed, and any family members who are present. You need to proof them as to precisely what they were told, how they were consented, what information they were given, and what they would have done had they been given the alternative information. Because otherwise you may find yourself three or four years down the road with a witness statement signed a month before and a judge questioning why it is that you're now so sure that you would have opted for a different alternative had it been proffered at the time. So, so yeah absolutely
2: key yeah, and i think the, the other the other advantage in prosecuting claims of clinical negligence is that it, clearly you'll be asking your your, your experts in the, in, in the right discipline what he or she considers were treat, the alternative treatment options that were available insofar far as they're different from the clinician who gave advice uh, and if the reality is That any other treatment alternatives were ones that a responsible body that not advised about, ones that a responsible body of of professional opinion uh, would not have considered to have been uh, necessarily appropriate to advise upon, then it's quite clear it it will at least allow a proper and full consideration of consent uh, against a a backdrop of expert evidence. Uh, And I agree, the the focus will always need to be on causation. So consent, consent will, will continue to be important and a careful analysis of it will continue to be required, both factually and with support of expert opinion evidence. And you want to avoid the
0: situation where you win all the legal battles and then fall down on causation because your claimant has never considered, oh, well, I would have actually taken the non-steroidals anyway. Yeah. Um, Well, that is it from us. Uh, It just leaves me to thank Chris and Louis for their um, input today. Uh, We would love to hear from you if you have any uh, feedback about this, our first podcast, or what we might... Uh, talk to you about in the future. Um, The contact details will be in the episode notes of wherever you download your podcast from. Thank you very much uh, for listening. Uh, I've been Chris Guttridge here with Chris Barnes, King's Council, Louis Brown, King's Council, and we will see you again soon.